right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's going on? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Nick Springer. Huge news. Huge news up the top here. NCAA college football video game, it's back. It's coming back. It's official. Obviously, there's been a lot of rumors about it, but the uh, the EA Sports made it official. They released this little hype video for it, this little trailer, I guess, so to speak, with more coming in May. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I can assure you that 15-year-old me is excited. NCAA football has not, this video game has not been around since NCAA football 14. That was the last one. I put so many hours in NCAA football 14, man. It, it's absurd. It's absurd. So... This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. We're going to talk some cake basketball here off the top coming up later on in the show. Later on this hour, we're going to get to our Super Bowl betting prop bet review. Derek and I on Friday made some uh, prop bets uh, for the Super Bowl, so we're going to go over those and see kind of maybe how we did uh, with our prop bets for the Chiefs and the Niners Super Bowl from uh, this past weekend. And at 4.05, we'll be joined by Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks, to talk more Kansas basketball. KU women's basketball also got a win last night. We'll break that down a little bit and in the five o'clock hour josh briscoe from sports radio 810 the zone and the kansas City sports network will join the show at 505 as well so as i said here off the top doug kansas basketball k you're going to take on oklahoma coming up on saturday which you'll be able to hear that game right here on klwn pre-game coverage starts at 1 30 for a three o'clock tip off kansas on the road in norman and obviously, their road woes this season have been well documented. They are one and five on the road in conference play, and their one road win came against what is by far the worst team in the conference, which is Oklahoma State. They have losses to the next two worst teams in the conference on the road in West Virginia and UCF. Also lost on the road against Texas Tech on Monday. Lost against Iowa State and Kansas State as well. And you look at the three remaining road games they have in conference. This one against Oklahoma is going to be by far the easiest. By far the easiest. Because Kansas will have to go to Waco to take on Baylor. And then go to Houston in the uh, final game of the season on March 9th before the uh, Big 12 Conference Tournament. And that ba- that game against Baylor could be tough for a variety of reasons. Because it'll be tough it'll be tough on the eyes to watch because of the terrible camera angle they have at their new, uh, new stadium <laughs> in Waco. So uh, Kansas on the road, they've struggled this season and then in conference play. And interestingly enough, if you look at Kansas, especially in conference-only games, they have been what I would call aggressively average so far in conference play. In, in fact, uh, in efficiency, they are 7th in offense in conference-only play and 6th in defense in conference-only play. And Of course, there are now 14 teams in the conference, so Kansas literally – very average so far in conference play on both sides of the ball. And a lot of that has to do with their with their three-point percentage on offense and their offensive rebound percentage. They've struggled with with allowing offensive rebounds or, or not getting offensive rebounds as well on offense. 
13th in the conference in conference only play on an offensive rebounding. But against that three-point percentage, they're at 32% Kansas is in conference only play, which is 11th in the conference. There have been there are three other teams that are worse than them from three in the conference, and it's three teams that are all near the bottom of the conference. Oklahoma State's been the worst. Cincinnati's been the second worst. And UCF's been the third worst before you get to Kansas at 32. Now, when you look at Oklahoma State down at 29.5, UCF at 30.5, and Cincinnati at 30.2, Kansas at 32. So they're you know a, a percent and a half better than the next three worst teams, and they're not that far off of being possibly higher. Kansas State is only 0.3% above them. Iowa State is only half a percent above them at 32.5. And then you got a bunch of teams near 33. So Kansas, with one good shooting night, from three could really improve that statistic in in uh, in the conference, but the real issue for Kansas in conference play is their three points is percentage of three pointer th- percentage of points that come from three pointers, which is down at twenty one point six percent, which is by far the lowest in in the conference to this point, uh, and that's been the issue, right? It's been not only that Kansas has at times really not been great from three, but on top of that, it's been that. They, because they are such a low-volume team, the fact that they also have struggled from three at times means that they don't get a lot of their points from three. Now, conversely, they are number one in the conference in getting their points from two-point shots, which makes a lot of sense. And they are still number two in the conference overall in effective field goal percentage, and they're number one in the conference in conference-only play in two-point percentage, which I think if you're putting on your hindsight glasses may be a bit hard to believe because of the fact that Kansas has struggled at the rim especially in the last couple games on the road. But they're still number one at in two-point percentage at 50, almost 57% so far uh, this season. Or so far in conference play, I should say. In conference only play, they've been pretty good. So that continues to be uh, kind of the, the main issue here with Kansas is that you just you just wonder if that philosophy, that strategy is good enough to win six consecutive games in March is really what it comes down to. Can you win six consecutive games if you are getting such a high volume of your points and um, uh, such a significant percentage of your points from inside the arc in an era of college basketball where the three-point shot has become, uh, you know, a bit of a darling. People, people, people like shooting the threes. Teams like shooting the threes. And in this type of era, when you have teams that can shoot very well from three, if you are going to be a team that says, you know what, we're going to lean into playing inside the arc and trying to score as much from inside because we don't have the shooters. Can you win games? Can you win six straight games that way, basically, in, in March? Interestingly enough, Kansas, they've also, you know, for the fact that they go inside so much, and I think this speaks to Hunter Dickinson and K.J. Adams, for the fact that they go inside so much and, and score so much from two, they have the lowest percentage of shots blocked on offense in the Big 12 at less than 7% of their shots getting blocked. And obviously when you have a guy like Hunter Dickinson, that really helps because he can shoot over most people. And KJ Adams is a guy that can generally shoot over people as well. And and one thing with Kansas that – one issue with Kansas that was pretty prominent earlier in the season and in the non-conference play was there were some games that were kind of defined by the turnovers for Kansas even early in conference play as well. You go back to like the UCF game and the TCU game that they still hung on to win. Those games were – Turnovers were a big talking point for Kansas. Well, Kansas now in conference play has been very good at not turning the ball over. In fact, they've been second best in the conference at not turning the ball over. 
so far in conference-only play. So they've done a really, really good job of turning that around. And, of course, they've still been so good at, uh, at assists and passing the ball that's really helped them a lot as well. When you look at their defense, their defense in conference-only play has been fairly average in most categories to this point in the season uh, in conference play. They've been, they're actually sixth in the conference in three point percentage, which is another stat that if you're using hindsight goggles or if you're paying, or if you're looking at it and saying, well, wait a minute, these boys have gotten torched from three in some games. They're sixth in the conference in three point percentage. There are, there are eight teams that are worse than them uh, in terms of three point defense. And I think that's, that just overall, that just kind of goes back to the, probably the randomness of three point defense a little bit. There is definitely some element of you know guarding your man and execution and 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 so on and so forth, but there is some randomness to it as well. Uh, so they're they're pretty much in the middle of the pack there. Their two point defense in conference only play has been pretty good so far. Uh, they haven't been particularly great at getting a lot of blocks or necessarily getting a lot of of. They are in the top five in steal percentage, so they've been doing a, a decent job there as well. But yeah, overall. When you look at some of the metric numbers, Kansas has been kind of average, average to slightly above average in conference play. You know, seventh best offense and efficiency in, in the conference, sixth best defense and efficiency. And that kind of all checks out when you think about the fact that, well, yeah, they're seven and five. And you look at their schedule and there are definitely some 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 close games like the TCU game that could have gone another way. The Baylor game that certainly could have gone another way. So they're just they've kind of been a, a, you know a team that's obviously been great at home but has struggled on the road and that's led to somewhat average numbers for this Kansas team when you look at them uh in, in conference only play and, and again not surprisingly KU dead last in, in percentage po- percentage of points coming from the three and when you take away a guy like Kevin McCuller uh, on top of that who's been one of the few volume three-point shooters that number's obviously gone down even further for Kansas uh so far in conference play when he's been unable to play. And, you know, you have a guy like DeWan Harris who can make them but isn't much of a shooter. Hunter Dickinson has been documented that he's been two for about 2,000 in his last three, in his last, uh, you know, three-point attempts in recent in recent games after he, after he was red hot to start the season. And, and then you throw in uh, KJ Adams, who's not a three-point shooter. Johnny Furphy, who has had a couple of games where he's gone over now in the past uh, three or four games as well. And the result is that Kansas has not been great from three. Uh, and when, when you look at Nick Timberlake specifically, Nick Timberlake is still shooting under 30% from three, which is just a really, really tough pill to swallow, I think, uh, probably for both KU fans and for this coaching staff because this was a guy that was billed as a three-point shooter, as somebody you could look to as a knockdown shooter. And and again, it's not like Kansas really took a, took a flyer or took a risk on Nick Timberlake. This is a dude who was fresh off a UConn visit before he committed to Kansas. He had just from North Carolina as well. So so top programs were taking a look at this guy as one of the top, uh, I guess, what you would say, you know, non-power six transfers or mid, mid, mid-major mid level transfers coming up. And Kansas was the one that got him, and unfortunately it hasn't worked out for him. And what's what's really frustrating is, generally speaking, you don't see somebody who is a good shooter just become a bad shooter, you know, in one way or another. I mean, this guy was 41% from three at Townsend in 21-21-22 and 42% from three last season on very high volume. 5.63 per game in 2021-22 and 6.73 per game last season. So uh, 
it's hard to explain that. And again, that just kind of points back to, yeah, there's probably some mental stuff. There's probably some mental stuff involved there with Timberlake. And, and again, I think I've, I've praised Timberlake quite a bit about the fact that I think outwardly he still maintains a positive attitude generally, but the Baylor game certainly on Saturday was a bit rough for him, but uh, hopefully he's a guy that, that Kansas can just get a little bit more out of. And it seems like he's maybe slowly but surely starting to turn the corner a little bit offensively, coming off of a pretty strong offensive game against uh, Texas Tech in which he hit two threes. So something to keep an eye on. Kevin McCuller, by the way, is still is still shooting 37% from three overall this season uh, when you look at his numbers. So he's a guy that I think Kansas will will have a nice injection, hopefully, when he comes back, especially if he's able to come back fully healthy which you know we'll see what his status is going into the OU game. And uh, we've had some conversation with this about about Kevin with, with Henry Greenstein of the Launch Journal World earlier in the week and, uh, and Trey Slada and Matt Tate as well of this idea of if Kevin McCuller is in a situation where he could play against Oklahoma or you give him a, the whole extra week because you don't have a game next week until Texas next Saturday to where you feel like he will be 100%, you may have to opt to give him that rest because at this point, with the Big 12 title being probably out of reach, now you're looking at the NCAA tournament, and Kevin McCuller is certainly a guy that you need to have at 100% when you hit the ground running in March. So I don't know. We'll see. Bill Self did mention earlier in the week that you know if he's unable to practice, then he's definitely not going to play. But if again, if you're in this sort of gray area where he's able to practice and seems like he could, he could go. I, I wonder if if what the thought process is there. If you maybe try to get him in a little bit, but limit his minutes, but I don't know. I think it's an interesting conversation in regards to this is a guy you need down the stretch, 100%, right? I mean, this is a guy that you need uh, down the stretch and, and a very, very important player. And the fact that – and I, I also think it's interesting, you know, he's still shooting 37% from three, and that's on top of the fact that he really, really became inefficient from three for a couple games there when I think he was dealing with that knee injury. You know, it was it's not exactly clear when that knee injury occurred, but I think you can – hope or expect that when he comes back, he might be back to a higher level three-point shooter because you can look at the numbers and see his three-point shooting became less efficient uh, in some certain games, and you wonder if it was because maybe he was dealing with, with, with that knee injury. And, you know, talked about the idea of you can expect some regression from Kevin McCullough, right, a guy who's been a low 30s at best three-point shooter in his career, but he seems to have he seemed to have figured it out earlier this season, and then he gets to the injury. So uh, you can expect maybe a little bit of regression, but maybe not. Maybe not. So, And I do think it's in- it's interesting with KU's lack of three-point shooting offensively because I think it maybe exacerbates some of the questions about their three-point defense as well because you get the sense that if you run into a team that can hit a lot of threes and does start pouring threes in, you get the sense that Kansas was is just not going to be able to answer or keep pace because they don't they don't have that level of three point shooting. So I think that helps. That I think that probably from an outside perspective exacerbates this idea of KU's three point defense has been struggling or not very good because of the fact that in the back of your mind when you watch a team hit two, three, four, five, or in Texas next case seven threes to start a game, you know that Kansas is not a team that's going to be able to answer that in kind. And so you know you can make all the twos you want. But if you're trading threes for twos, that's going to be an advantage to your opponent at that point. So that's uh, that's kind of uh, an interesting thought there of, of the idea of maybe that helps exacerbate the thoughts on 
the KU three-point defense. And uh, as I mentioned, defensively for Kansas from the three, they're at 34.8% in conference-only games, which is in the middle of, in, in the middle of the pack. And I know that doesn't necessarily ease the pain of uh, having nightmares of watching Darian Williams from Texas Tech or Raekwon Battle just just making every shot, but there is a little bit of there's definitely some luck factor involved uh, overall in uh, in their three point defense. When you look a little bit closer at their defense, Hunter Dickinson is actually KU's second highest rated defender, and he's right behind Kevin McCuller. Like it's actually pretty close when uh, you look at some of the metrics. When you look at like the uh, the defensive BPR for uh, those players, you look at Kevin McCuller. He's a 3.15. Higher number is good. Lower number is bad. 3.15. Hunter Dickinson's a 3.04. And by comparison, the next closest to Juan Harris at 2.21. So not only is Hunter Dickinson KU's second best defender, he's pretty clearly their second best defender. And uh, he's he's been pretty clearly their, their second best player metrically two ways, right? Offensively and defensively. And uh, it's it's interesting. You you look at Furphy, Johnny Furphy's defensive BPR. It's actually higher than Almarco's right now. And I think Johnny Furphy is entering Grady Dick territory in the sense that while he is not the best defender and while you probably can expect him to maybe get blown by a time or two, he's a high effort player. He's a, you know, he's not a guy that's it's not like he's not trying out there. He's just He's just learning and getting to that level, right? So I, I think that probably earns him a little bit more slack, I would think, from Bill Self, maybe. And on top of that, Furphy obviously does so much for this KU team offensively that El Marco just hasn't quite been able to do. But yeah, his, his DP his DPPR is, is is higher also than El Marco's overall. So something else uh, uh, to note is that Dewan Harris he's he's been up and down certainly on the interior shooting the ball. He's at just 46% on what is determined as what is, what is called close two-point shots. Uh, so in you know, close in the paint, which is by far the lowest out of the primary contributors for Kansas this season. The next lowest is Kevin McCuller at 64%. So he's nearly he's over 15% worse in in the interior uh, than any other player. Which is funny also for Kevin McCuller because it feels like it feels like Kevin McCuller can never get an and one. He gets fouled and he just never makes those and one shots. Uh, <laughs> so that can be kind of frustrating to watch sometimes. But I do think it's safe to say that the Texas Tech game was an anomaly in terms of the poor shooting from Hunter Dickinson and KJ Adams. I, I hope at least, I guess it is. I mean, I guess you look at the K-State game and maybe for Hunter specifically, maybe not. But I think... I don't know. We might get into this with Brian Haney, maybe more coming up in the four o'clock hour. But I, I think it's safe to say that it's probably an anomaly, and and with some more rest, I think those guys will start to figure things out, especially in close. And I think with KJ Adams, it's even more interesting because when you look at his a lot of his raw numbers, he's pretty pretty similar to what he put up last season in terms of points scored, rebounding, things like that. But I think he's definitely been a better overall player this season than last season. And I think that just speaks to his versatility, I would say. You look at his like two-point percentage, it's actually lower this year than last season. Only by 1%, though. He was at 60% from from uh, two-point percent from two-point last season, 61% this season. But I don't know, it's just interesting because I think KJ, without a doubt, has been a better player this season than he was last season. But it's maybe not totally reflected in a lot of the numbers. 
Uh, and then lastly here, this last thing I wanted to get to with, with KU's starting lineup, including Kevin. So KU's starting lineup of Kevin McCuller, KJ Adams, Dewan Harris, Johnny Furphy, and Hunter Dickinson. That's the seventh highest rated lineup in the entire country when you look at uh, Evan Miakow's website determining uh, determining lineup ratings. They have the seventh highest rated lineup in the country. So that just kind of reiterates, I think, or compounds the fact that, hey, if all five of those dudes can get fully healthy for the NCAA tournament and you can get a little bit of contribution from the combination of Nick Timberlake and Marco Jackson, if you've got the seventh best lineup in the country heading into the NCAA tournament and you can play those guys really a majority of games, that should put you in position, you would think, to possibly make a run, right? So all you have to do is just get it, get to the NCAA tournament with those with those guys healthy. Now, obviously, we've, we've kind of seen without those five guys, in the case of Kevin McCuller being out, Kansas at home has still been really good, but on the road, obviously, it's been a different story, as uh, as evidenced by by Monday night against Texas Tech. So, if those and that that kind of goes back to the discussion of Kevin McCuller of, man, do you if he's if you feel like he can play against Oklahoma, but maybe it's better to rest him. What do you do? It's it's a tough conversation to have, and obviously, he's such a tough player individually, and I'm sure I'm sure that he's definitely lobbying for for being on the floor, but. I don't know. It could be, could be a tough decision there coming coming up on the uh, on Saturday against Oklahoma. So, of course, the NCAA tournament always comes down to matchups, but it just feels like, man, you got the seventh highest rated lineup in the country, and you can play them more in the NCAA tournament with longer timeouts, longer half times, etc. You don't have to travel, uh, you know, from a from a Friday to to Sunday game or a Thursday to Saturday game. It's pretty good. It's pretty good if those guys can remain healthy and. And, and get things going. And then if you can get just a little bit off your, your bench from the combination of Timberlake, El Marco, and Parker Brown. So we'll see. Kansas is going to take on Oklahoma on Saturday. We'll dive a lot more into that game coming up on tomorrow's show. We'll take a timeout right now here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. As I said, we're going to be joined by Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks, coming up at 4.05. Kansas women's basketball got a big win last night. We'll get into that a little bit in the 4 o'clock hour. Josh Briscoe of Sports Radio 810, The Zone, and also of the Only World's Only Weird Games podcast on the Kansas City Sports Network. He will join the show at 5.05. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Nick Springer. Coming up. In about 20 minutes from right now, we'll be joined by Brian Haney at the top of the 4 o'clock hour, voice of the Jayhawks, to talk all things KU. Also in the 4 o'clock hour, we'll get to a little bit of Kansas women's basketball as they got a win last night. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll be joined by Josh Briscoe to talk more about the uh, Kansas City Chiefs and more. Also got some audio from KU women's basketball's uh, win last night coming up later on in the show as well. And... uh, just got word as well that uh, if you are in the uh, Lawrence area, there is a, a pretty bad wreck that has occurred at Bob Billings and, and Castled. Uh, so I encourage you to maybe avoid that area, or if you are in that area, uh, just be wary of that. Uh, an, an accident, uh, that's that's the latest. All the information I have right now is that there was an accident uh, that's uh, maybe causing some traffic issues and more over at uh, Bob Billings and Castled. So please uh, just be aware of that if you are driving in or near that area. So on Friday, before the Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs go on and win the Super Bowl, 
25-22 in overtime over the San Francisco 49ers. And on Friday before the Super Bowl, we went over some of the top prop bets of the game heading into the Super Bowl. Obviously, prop bets generally a big deal for the Super Bowl. Most notably, the uh, national anthem for Reba McIntyre. We did Derek and I did not specifically may, uh, bet this one, but uh, Reba McIntyre over 98 and a half seconds on the national anthem there. So, and listen, Lee Sterling came on our show and said that he had some, you know, did some extensive research. His daughter did some extensive research and determined that they felt they felt the under was the way to go. But as as with these things, sometimes it ends up being uh, it ends up being incredible. All right, so the first uh, prop bet that Derek and I looked at was the jersey number of the first touchdown score over under 22 and a half. And I went over, Derek went uh, over, or Derek went under actually on that one. And of course, it was over because it was 23 Christian McCaffrey who uh, scored that first touchdown for the San Francisco 49ers at that point, making it to 10 0. But yeah, McCaffrey was the uh, first touchdown scorer for uh, for either team. It was for the Niners, and it was on that ridiculous pass from Juwan Jennings to McCaffrey that was really played pretty well defensively by the Chiefs, but it just didn't matter. So there you go. I went. I'm one to zero, and that and that uh, Derek zero and one. Mahomes over under passing yards two hundred and sixty and a half. That went way over. And it's funny because you know, watching the game, you may not have expected that Mahomes would end up with 333 passing yards, but that's what he finished with. And in fact, he was just one yard short. He had 66. He had 66 rushing yards. He was just one yard short of 400 total yards in the Super Bowl. And you know, I know you look back at like the Eagles Super Bowl and Mahomes MVP didn't throw for 200 yards. You go back to the to the first nine of Super Bowl, and it was well, you know, maybe Damian Williams should have won it, whatever. I think some people were maybe were wanting to see Mahomes just kind of go nuclear in a Super Bowl to really solidify like an MVP, like throwing for a bunch of yards, and and he did do that. I mean, he threw for 333 yards, almost had 400 total yards on his own, but it didn't really feel that way. And he ends up with two touchdowns passing, uh, plus the one interception. But yeah, man, almost 400 total yards. He was the Chiefs' leading rusher uh, over Isaiah Pacheco in the game, uh, but his passing total. Goes way over here by almost over 70 yards. Derek and I had both gone with the over. So I'm now 2-0. Derek 1-1. One and, one. and you get to Rashi Rice. Under 67.5 receiving yards in the Super Bowl. Derek and I both said under. And it was under. 6 for 39 for Rice in the Super Bowl. And and again, I think kind of the discussion there was not that necessarily I had lack of faith in Rashi Rice to get to to you know to to get that much yards or to to be an impactful player in the Super Bowl. It's just that when you think about the ways that Rashi Rice has been used all season long for the Chiefs, it's been in short passing situations and him running after the catch. So kind of exactly what I thought would happen did end up happening where he ends up with six catches, but again for only thirty nine yards because he's so often is a guy that they get the ball to him close to the line of scrimmage and try to let him run run with it. Uh, and his longest reception of the game was thirteen yards. So and at, uh, that was on the, I believe that was an overtime. That was the play where he catches it on the jet sweep and runs out of bounds. So, uh, yeah, I, I felt that it was under. And uh, once again, I was right. So, hate to brag, but 3-0 and right now. Derek got that one right, too. He was under as well on Rashi Rice. So, Derek 2-1, and I'm 3-0. and uh, Pacheco over under 67.5 rushing yards. And this is where I take my first L. I thought over, but Pacheco only ended with 59 yards on the ground. 
for the Chiefs. He end, he ended up with six catches for 33 yards. So total in total yards, he was close to 90. But under under on the rushing yard total there. So, and I honestly I remember predicting that I thought if this went under, the Chiefs probably would not win the Super Bowl. Well, I'm glad that I was wrong on that. So I'm glad that I'm an idiot there because he goes under, but the Chiefs do still win. Uh, Derek and I both went over on Pacheco's rushing total, so I dropped to three and one. Derek two and two on our picks so far. And this was one where. I felt really confident in this one. I really did. I felt really confident in this one. It was Chris Jones over under .25 sacks in the game. And somehow, some way, that ended up going under. Chris Jones did not officially get a stat on or not officially get a sack on the stat sheet. There was a one sack credit to the Chiefs and it was a half sack for Carl Aftis and, Dr- and Justin Reed. So Chris Jones, no sacks for him, but but man, that guy is so dominant, obviously, and uh, still made a significant impact in a lot of different ways in the game for the Chiefs when you when you go back and watch it. And then you couple that in with uh, what he was saying at the Super Bowl rally, at the parade about, you know, uh, I saw a lot of jokes on social media about, you know, hey, Feach, grab Chris Jones right now and have him sign the contract right now, you know, without even looking at the numbers because he might have done it. Uh, it's 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 great to see that he wants that. I think he does want to come back. We'll see what happens as things kind of unfold. The Chiefs obviously have a lot of tough decisions to be made, but as valuable as Chris Jones is, and as great as Chris Jones is, the more that I think about it, if you're if it comes down to it, and it's hey, Lajarius Sneed or Chris Jones, I think I'm probably taking Lajarius Sneed. I think I really am. I mean, listen. Chris Jones is is a dominant player, and uh, he will be forever remembered as a Chiefs legend, and he's been so great as a member of the Chiefs. But, man, if you can have LeJarrius Sneed and Trent McDuffie both locked up for the ne- for the next couple of years with an extension for Sneed and McDuffie still on his, on his first-year deal, on his first rookie-year deal, I mean, you're talking about legitimately two of the top, what, five corners in the league? And when you have those types of players on the outside, that allows you to do so much defensively, so much defensively uh, in other ways. And so I, I would almost take Legereus Sneed. And on top of that, obviously, the other big aspect of that is Legereus Sneed is going to be a lot cheaper than Chris Jones. So you can get Legereus Sneed and then still possibly use money that you would have had to tie up with Chris Jones in other areas. So. I don't know. I mean, obviously, in a perfect world, maybe you, f- you somehow find a way to make it work where both guys stick around. But listen, uh, I've always said this, you know, in the NFL or in really professional athletics in general, I don't think you can ever fault a guy for trying to get what he think what he is worth uh, monetarily, because as professional athletes, your lifespan as a professional athlete is, is so short, comparatively speaking. You know, I mean, the average NFL career, I think, is is what generally less than five years. So you have such a small window to capitalize on, you know, the prime years for you. And obviously, Chris Jones is is probably getting closer to being on the back end of his prime. But again, I just you can never fault anybody. I don't think for wanting to get that right. So if Chris Jones, if that's what he wants and that's what he deserves, hopefully somebody pays him that. You know, and it might be the Chiefs, it might be somebody else, but. 
I, you know, I, I always like to see when players, especially a player that of that level of Chris Jones, to get the amount the amount of money that that they are worth. So, I would like to see that. Truly, and again, if there was obviously in a perfect world, if there was some way you could make it work where they both stay, but I don't know. If you say, hey, you can only keep one, Legereus Sneed or Chris Jones, probably I would lean Legereus Sneed at this point. But uh, yeah, so he goes under on the, long story short, back to the, the Super Bowl prop bet review. He goes under on that .25 sacks. Both Derek and I said over, another L there. So I'm down to, f- what, three and two. Derek is at uh, two and three, or wait, no, four and two, I think. And Derek down to three and three. Then the over-under. Now, this obviously was a very, very big deal for for people that were invested in the game, potentially, financially. Over-under was 47 and a half. 47 and a half. You may have gotten it at 46 and a half. It was 46 and a half, 47, 47 and a half. The total in the game, obviously, 25-22, ended up being 47. 47.5 47.5 is the number that Derek and I decided to go with at the time on Friday. I said over 47.5. Derek said under. Derek gets this one. But it's 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 so... It's, it's, it's just frustrating to even think about that it was that close. That it was that close. But obviously, you know, the game goes to overtime. And you're thinking, oh, okay, so we have a chance here. Uh, but in the end, depending on, again, depending on what number you got, it changes just a little bit. And then, of course, we had to bet the game line as well. The San Francisco 49ers, minus two, minus two and a half, minus three, depending on where you got them against the Chiefs. Chiefs win the Super Bowl as underdogs again. Derek and I both picked the Chiefs. Of course, you know I was going to pick the Chiefs. Uh, so I get the Chiefs, and Derek gets the Chiefs, and we win there. So that was pretty good. And uh, it's 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 still hard to believe, right, that the Chiefs back to Super Bowl champions for the first time in over 20 years and, and a chance at a three-peat, really. And, and again, it's it's really... It's not that crazy to suggest that the Kansas City Chiefs might actually be better talent-wise or better built in the next upcoming years, right? These two years, really, of the Chiefs, last year and this year, were the two years where you were supposed to get the Chiefs, were the two years where Josh Allen was supposed to get his, Joe Burrow was supposed to get his, Lamar Jackson. Didn't happen. Didn't even come close to happening. Joe Burrow obviously got hurt, which kind of derailed derailed things for the for the Bengals. But Lamar Jackson, nope. Josh Allen, nope. <laughs> Drew Tranquil, Drew Tranquil said it best <laughs> when he took the mic uh, during the parade at one point yesterday morning. You know, these were supposed to be the years where you're supposed to get yours if you're not Mahomes, and it just didn't happen. And now you look at how the Chiefs are built with their young talent continuing to come up, and you think. Oh boy, they're gonna be even better next year, probably. You know, I mean, for the Chiefs, you go out and make you go out and make a couple signings at wide receiver, and suddenly you look like you could be even better next year, really, which is pretty remarkable to think. So, you missed your chance, rest of the NFL. You missed your chance. Another prop bet that uh, Derek and I went to with with the uh, Gatorade color, the Gatorade bath. I picked blue. Uh, Derek picked orange. It ended up being purple. Which uh, purple? What are we? What are we doing? Why? Why purple? What, what's going on there? So I don't know about that one, but uh, it ended up being purple. So we were both wrong on that one. On the Gatorade color, 
and uh, the Super Bowl MVP. We took two. Derek took Travis Kelsey and Mike Edwards. Uh, Mike Edwards was his long shot at 200 to 1. Travis Kelsey was, I'm sure, a popular pick because of the Taylor Swift stuff. And he definitely had the best or maybe second best game of non of skill position players in the game. You know, you look at what McCaffrey did. He 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 McCaffrey got his 22 carries, 80 yards, 3.6 yards per carry loss but made of that because it was his lowest average yards per carry uh, with the Niners with Trent Williams. But he still had eight catches for 80 yards out of the backfield as well. So he still ended up with 160 yards and a touchdown. Besides McCaffrey, Kelsey was the next best skill position player with nine catches for 93 yards. But uh, it wasn't meant to be, right? I mean, he would have had to get a couple touchdowns probably to have a chance to win that MVP. Uh, and I, I went with uh, Mahomes, and then I went with Chris Jones, right? So Mahomes obviously ends up winning it. I don't know. I mean, I guess me picking Mahomes was kind of a cop-out, but also I don't care, truly. And then uh, with Chris Jones, that was my long shot. I felt that, you know, again, man, I mean, I think we've we've – We've maybe come closer than people think to defensive players winning MVP over the past couple of years than maybe you would realize. Uh, I mean, and again, I you know Nick Bolton, if his if his second touchdown counts and he has two two defensive touchdowns in a game, you know that game was more high scoring, so maybe not. But I mean, you the case was there potentially, right? So I don't know. But uh, I ended up being right on that one, too. How about that? Mahomes. Mahomes with the MVP. And then uh, we each decided to pick a separate lock of uh, of which wager we went with. And actually, funnily enough, in our locks, both Derek and I's locks ended up hitting. Derek went with over uh, Mahomes over 25.5 rushing yards. Mahomes nearly tripled that with 66 rushing yards. That's just what he does, man. He just He just makes plays. That seemed like a... I was definitely on board with that pick from from Derek as well, and uh, he was right. And then my pick, my lock, was largest lead of the game to be under 13.5 at plus 110, so really good odds, and that ended up coming true as well. The Niners got out to a 10-0 lead, and that was the largest lead of the game. So both of our locks hit as well. How about that? So, And let's, let's say something, because locks of the week – in game picks, you've been following the show with, with with Derek throughout the season. Locks of the week have been far from locks of the week. I mean, we have not been very good overall in those picks, but they both hit for the Super Bowl, so that's pretty cool. That's our uh, Super Bowl prop bet recap. So I hit ended up hitting more uh, than Derek did in kind of his uh, last, I guess, uh, homage to to Derek here uh, of the Super Bowl prop bets that we did on Friday ahead of the Super Bowl. But uh, per usual, I'm better. Always have been. Always will be. And uh, Derek, if you if you listen back to this, yeah, you, you suck. I'm better. I'm better than you. All right, that's our Super Bowl. That's our Super Bowl uh, review of prop bets. We're going to be joined by Brian Haney coming up on the other side at 405. Your voice of the Jayhawks talk more Kansas basketball. Got more from the Kansas women's basketball team as they got a win. And Josh Briscoe in the 5 o'clock hour. One hour down, two to go. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Four o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Nick Springer, and right now we are joined by voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney. Uh, you'll be able to hear Brian on the call of the KU-Oklahoma game coming up on Saturday in Norman. You'll be able to hear that game right here on KLWN. 
with pregame coverage beginning at 1.30 for a 3 o'clock tip-off on the road in Norman. And, Brian, of course, we can start right there with another road game for Kansas after a tough road loss against Texas Tech. Kansas, has they've struggled on the road so far this season. I guess heading out of the game against Oklahoma, what, what do you hope to see from Kansas maybe where they can work out some of these road woes they've had in conference play so far? Well, it'll help to have two guys back that they haven't had, obviously, of late. And no guarantees just yet, but Coach just sounded optimistic today at his press conference just about an hour and a half ago that Kevin McCullough would be able to return. He sounded hopeful, we'll put it that way. And he said Kevin was able to practice yesterday in what was just about a 45-minute practice doing mostly defensive work. That really starts to ramp it up today, actually right now as we speak. And then we'll see how the knee's feeling after that and see how he does tomorrow as well before they fly down to Norman. But Coach made it very clear on Tuesday's Hot Talk that in order for Kevin to play on Saturday, you know, he would need to practice this week and practice consistently and, and not be any worse for the wear. But Jamari's definitely back. You know, flu-like symptoms, that's a five-day type thing. And so he's certainly on the other side of that. That helps, obviously. But there's no doubt. If you take away a 19-point-per-game score and a guy that's considered to be one of the top 15 defenders in the country, and Kevin McCullough, that's going to have an adverse effect. I'm not saying it would have made 29 points worth of difference on Monday. But you can't tell me that it's not a, a much different ball game if McCullough plays because uh, he's a guy that you know, is arguably as good of a perimeter defender as you're going to see. And Darion Williams hitting 12 for 12 from the field, the greatest shooting game in Texas Tech history. If Kevin's playing, surely he can throw some kind of wrench in that system, and surely he's providing a scoring punch that would help you overcome the five of 30 shooting line that we saw out of KJ and Dewan and Hunter. I think what we've discovered is, while DeWan is certainly a capable offensive initiator, Kevin is the guy that you need that, that really spaces the floor and makes this offense flow so much better for everybody involved. And I thought KJ's one of ten line on Monday was largely the product of a guy that was trying to, to force a few shots that he wouldn't normally take because it's Kevin creating off the bounce. It's Kevin driving the lane and getting fouled. It's Kevin you know, able to, to draw defensive attention and then kick to an open KJ for his little 12-foot shot put type release that he's perfected or KJ at the rim. Instead, you know, KJ's trying to dribble and make things happen at tough angles and force up shots that probably weren't wheelhouse-type finishes for him. And obviously, we've got to get Hunter Dickinson going. I mean, it's been three straight halves of very atypical hunt. And Coach said that on Monday night, it, it kind of looked like he needed to get his legs back underneath him. So, Hopefully after resting Tuesday and going really light on Wednesday, you know, you'll see a Hunter Dickinson that looks rejuvenated a little bit. But I think, honestly, having a bye week next week and the midweek to not have to play anybody until the following Saturday versus Texas, that's going to help everybody on this team. So hopefully they'll find a way to win between now and then and then uh, sit back a bit and, and heal up any mixed bumps and bruises they may still have more than anything get guys like Hunter and DeWan and KJ off their feet a little bit and then head into that stretch run with so many opportunity games to uh, still be a part of this league race. More than anything, enhance your tournament positioning and do so with a chance to win some marquee contests in the last three weeks. Yeah, with Kevin McCuller, like you said, with, with what Bill Self said earlier this afternoon about him possibly playing, I, I do think it's interesting, right, because if Kevin McCuller is in a situation where he could play against Oklahoma but maybe he's not fully 100%, 
I guess considering the fact that you have that extra week then the following week before Texas, is there any possibility you think that maybe it's a situation where, hey, you know, we need to make sure that you are totally 100% before we head into this final stretch and maybe even if you could go against Oklahoma and I know we know you want to go, but maybe it's best to wait until Texas. Do you, do you think that's a possibility at all heading into this game or, or, or if Kevin's ready to go, you think he's going to be out there? Well, it's definitely a thought because if you sit him out, he would have sat from the 6th to the 24th of February without any game action because of that open date next week. And that would be a pretty substantial amount of time to rest the guy, try to get on the other side of the bone bruise. I mean, every knee is different, right? Every bruise is different. But you'd like to think that that amount of time, he's as close to 100% as he's going to get. But he's been doing things throughout. Like, he went through Monday's game day practice, and he wasn't sprinting up and down the floor and stopping on a dime to try to stop a defender or anything like that. But he was going through some of the drills that, that show you he's inching closer and closer. It's not like he's just been sedentary for three weeks and, and not touching the basketball. But I, I think that if they want to bring him back but really cap his minutes and be careful to not overextend, they could do it. Because while the overarching biggest goal of the season is just to make sure we're playing our best ball heading into March to have the deepest possible run in the tournament, at the same time, your margin for error in having any say in this league race is gone if you lose on Saturday. I mean, at this point, you pretty much got to win out. And they're resigned to the fact that they may not win it this year. And the coach has said for several weeks now that the Big 12 regular season championship probably doesn't mean as much this year with the imbalanced schedule as it meant in previous years where everybody played everybody the same amount of times and home versus road was all even. But, but you'd still like to have a say in the race. You're still only a game and a half back, but to get to 13-5, and five, which Coach said was kind of the magic number to win it outright, obviously you got to go 6-0 and the rest of your game. So if they could be careful with Kevin but allow him to be a part of this thing, impact the game as, as much as he can, shake off some of the rust, I think that's your, your option 1A. But if there's any thought that, man, he's just not looking the way he needs to at practice yet, why don't we rest him? They certainly would go with that because the basket we want to put the bulk of our eggs in is making sure this team is absolutely peaking once Selection Sunday rolls around. And that means being healthy and fresh and, and creating a little bit of momentum that you're just not going to get if you're playing a guy one game and then sitting down two because you keep aggravating it. So his overall... here in, in mid-February, certainly. But if they can get something out of him to try to stay in the hunt, they absolutely will. Yeah, when you go back to that Texas Tech game, you touched on it with the incredible performance by, by Darian Williams. Did you, did you get the sense maybe that that was just a game where, you know, hey, it wasn't your night, it was the other team's night? Or do you think there was things that maybe you could still tangibly take away from that game going forward the rest of the season? I apologize. I'm driving and it kind of broke up a little bit. For the team as a whole or Hunter in particular? Just for the team as a whole. I mean, obviously when you have a game like that and the way it went, was it just was it just not KU's night, you think, or, or do you think there are some things some things you could take away from that game going forward? You know, I, I've never been a fan of the cliche, boy, just trash that game film and move on to the next. There's nothing you're going to learn from that. So I feel like you can always learn something from every defeat. But if there ever was a game where you wouldn't spend a whole lot of time looking at it it's this one because obviously no Kevin, no Jamari. You're playing two walk-ons in meaningful minutes. Gowan was probably 80%. And while it was courageous for him to be up there, 
anybody that knows his full capabilities could see he wasn't his normal self. And I'm not just talking about shooting numbers. I'm just talking in general. Um, and then, obviously, you saw the greatest shooting performance in Texas Tech history. And so there were a lot of variables that just aren't that probable to be, uh, you know, replicated going forward. And so I, I think what you learn from that one, because like I said, you can take something from any performance, is that we got to find a way to start faster, not allow an opponent to get energized, get that fan base, you know, fired up to, to the absolute pin level of enthusiasm and, and put extra confidence and belief and swagger in a team that had been a little bit up and down. I mean, they'd lost three or four coming in, and then we allowed Darion Williams to go out and, and shoot lights out, and all of a sudden he thought he was Kobe Bryant for the rest of the night. And I was talking with Nick Timberlake about it earlier today, and he, he had a great line. He said, you know, we got to be the team that punches first. And obviously we're not talking literally, but he, he wants to see his team come out swinging to play from out in front, keep the crowd sitting down, keep the opposition a little bit shaky in terms of their belief and confidence. Because if you come out flat and, and you give hope to an underdog, and I know Tech was favored, but let's call it like it is. I mean, can you lead the all-time series 4-2 to two to 42 to 8 for a reason. And, and we made a team that had been scuffling a bit and had fallen from 15th in the country to out of the polls suddenly feel like world beaters again by, by getting off to a rough start. We want to see Kansas defensively turned up, running teams off the line on the catch, not giving them a chance to get set and, and hit threes early and build belief that makes that rim look wider and makes everything feel more possible. So I'd love to take that as the, the takeaway for Kansas. And beyond that, I just think the personnel is going to be so much different, hopefully going forward, that uh, I won't put too much stock in anything else we saw that night. But there's always something you can learn, and that would probably be the takeaway from me. Yeah, when, when you talk about Nick Timberlake specifically, he had, I would say, a, a bit of a whirlwind of 48 hours, I guess, from Saturday to Monday, kind of with how things ended at the end of the Baylor game and then in the Texas Tech game for him to come out and still score 13 points. I, I know Bill Self on Hawk Talk said, you know, hey, somebody's got to be a leading scorer even when you have a, even you have a bad game where you lose by 30. But do, do you get the sense that maybe Timberlake kind of learned from that experience on Saturday and has and turned a corner a little bit to where he's, he's a guy that you think could step up for Kansas down the stretch and heading into the NCAA tournament? I think so. I, I think we've seen enough positives out of him offensively that his confidence is, is slowly coming out of the funk that it was in. And you can understand why, you know, it, it would stay in, in the, the cellar in terms of his mental side of the game because for every 12 point first half at Morgantown, like we saw, there's been three or four games where he's come in, had some good looks, they haven't gone down, and then just kind of pressing. But I, I think for Nick, you know, to see the ball go through the hoop consistently in back-to-back games, to be able to make plays not only with his jump shot, but he, he's had some tips and seals that have led to runouts and dunks, and you've seen a little of that athleticism flash. Uh, that's obviously huge. But the big thing he's got to prove to Bill Self and to his teammates, too, is that he can be a consistent defender that not only stops the man in front of him, but when Kansas is switching ball screens, is that he's in the right place. And I understand that takes him getting used to the way we play defense, maybe not what he's familiar with a thousand, and the defensive level of expectation is higher than perhaps what he's been coached in the past, and it's taken probably longer for him to settle in. But he understands that that's his ticket to staying on the floor. He understands that the breakdowns that happened on those last two Baylor possessions on Saturday absolutely cannot happen. And you know, the quicker he can 
you know, flush some of those types of uh, outcomes. And, uh, and the more that he can show he can be trusted to hit the open shot when it's there, the more we'll see Kansas lean on him because we're going to have to. I mean, there is no other option at this point besides getting something out of El Marco and Nick. I, I think Jamari's going to be a nice player here over the long haul, but it's unrealistic to expect Jamari to be this March Madness game changer off the bench for Kansas. So if KU's going to have any kind of spark to make any kind of deep run in terms of bench contributions, it's going to have to come from those two guys. And that's where I hope this brief spell of, of no Kevin McCuller and no Jamari that forced those two into significant minutes, forced those two into chances to start and, and have to you know, be trusted to take on more of a load, I hope that that leads not only for more confidence for the two of them, but eventually more trust out of the head coach. And we're getting there. I know Coach is still upset with the way we closed it out on Saturday, and that makes it still hard to sing a ton of praises right now about those two guys and Nick in particular. But to me, it's baby steps and at least it's inching in the right direction because, hey, just even three weeks ago, we were talking about, are we going to get anything out of these guys? And at least now you're starting to see the light come on a little bit in both cases. Well, on, on Monday night, we also saw something that we haven't seen before at, at Kansas, which was Bill Self getting, getting ejected from the game late in the second half uh, after arguing a call. Uh, and he kind of made some comments about that post game. I guess, what was kind of your reaction to that? I, you know, you've now had Bill Self get ejected. You had Scott Drew and Kelvin Sampson both get ejected from games earlier last week as well. Uh, what's kind of reaction to that? And, and, you know, are these coaches maybe trying to send a message in other ways to the league about, I guess, the, the officiating at this point? Yeah, I don't think there was any uh, premeditated agenda there trying to send a message. I know he wasn't trying to get tossed. He uh, did not, according to him, swear. He did not yell over the top like we've seen him yell in other instances. He just had a couple of pointed comments that uh, – Ray Matilli and that crew didn't like, and next thing you know, the night's over for him. But pretty wild when that happens, and you start thinking, man, I don't think that's ever happened at Kansas. And sure enough, you know, we, we confirmed afterwards that it was Tulsa way, way back in 1999, I think the year was, the last time it happened, and just twice in his entire Hall of Fame coaching career. So he's clearly um, a guy that usually gets his money's worth with officials and it's not uncommon to see one tee, but you rarely ever see the double technical. And in this case, he wasn't trying to get it. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to do this with 549 to go, and it's going to inspire my team to come back on some big run. Uh, so it wasn't premeditated by any means. But I do think that um, you know the guys know he's got their back, and to some degree that's a positive. But I think that's the first and the last. We'll see that any time soon from Coach Self. Uh, in terms of an ejection, you may get another technical before the year's done because it's been that kind of year, I think, with uh, you know some of the uh, ups and downs of the way the games have gone. But I, I don't think that's anything he was intentionally trying to set out and do. We've been talking a lot about Kevin McCuller, obviously, and his injury, and that yeah, you kind of mentioned it, but that kind of overshadowed Dewan Harris, you know, rolling his ankle late in the Baylor game and maybe not being 100% against Texas Tech. Uh, do you feel confident that he's that he can be back to 100% and, and, and is going to be ready to go here down the stretch and, and can help lead this Kansas team from the point? I think so. Yeah, I, I don't think there was any setback on Monday at all. They rested Tuesday, went very light yesterday. He's a gamer. He's tough as nails. I think we should all gain respect for DeLon with the fact that it wasn't even in question that he would miss that game on Monday in his mind. It may have been something we were worried about, 
as fans and media, but in his mind, he was always going to play on Monday, and, and that's what you want out of your floor general. That's what you want out of you know the, the point guard that's won a national championship and now is trying to win another. So just an absolute ton of respect for him for being so consistent and tough. Yeah, and you look forward to this game on Saturday for Oklahoma, uh, for KU taking on Oklahoma, and uh, I guess again another, another road game right after after a tough road loss for Kansas against Texas Tech. What do you think will be the key for for KU? You mentioned punching first, but be, beyond that, what do you think will be the most important things for Kansas to to, to get a win in Norman and, and kind of shake off maybe some of the road woes they've had? Well, I, I think it's going to be a charged atmosphere. I mean, Oklahoma hasn't had a ton of sellouts in recent years, but this one reportedly is that. And uh, it's an Oklahoma team that's really athletic, that uh, you know can certainly get out and run and uh, can pile up the points on you if you're not careful. And yet, at the same time, I, I think if Kansas is back to full strength from a personnel standpoint, I really like our chances to win this one and log our first road win since the last time we were down in the center state in Stillwater. But we've got to find a way to, uh, to play clean like we did in the first meeting with just the two turnovers they had. Greatest job of taking care of the basketball in KU history. We need to make sure that, that we're effective on the defensive glass. I think so often when we've had really good 30 seconds of defensive possessions. We've seen the opposition flip in and get that second chance opportunity. And they've got some jumpers and leapers on this team, including more that are some of the more athletic guys that we'll face. And so while there's maybe not the, uh, you know, the premier center like we've seen in some other matchups, and there's no Misi like you saw last Saturday, I think they've got a lot of athletic players that, uh, you know, can certainly extend possessions for them. So, uh, again, you, you want to see Kansas start fast. You want to see him play through Hunter. See Hunter return to form in terms of his efficiency. And that starts with getting deeper catches. I mean, Coach talked about that today, that a lot of teams are pushing him out from the basket and he's struggling to get closer position on the block. So you'd love to see them establish him early. If Kevin is able to return, you'd love to see what that does in spacing the floor for the rest of the guys. Hit some shots. Get Johnny Furphy you know, driving the ball downhill and maybe getting a chance to, to hit some threes as well. Coach reference the opponents are starting to run him off the line a little bit uh, before the catch. Now that the scouting report has been extended on him through a 10-game sample size as a starter. So I think these are all little things that Kansas can do. But, uh, but more than anything, let's, let's see a fast start. Let's see some defensive rebounding. And let's see if these Jayhawks can start to build a little bit of momentum and, and find that signature moment that tends to happen this time of year every year with a Bill Self-Coach team where you feel like, okay, that's where we really started to come together as a group. Coach said earlier today that still hasn't happened yet with this team, but he's confident it still will, and uh, we're hoping that, that that starts maybe even Saturday in Norman. He is Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks. You'll be able to hear him on the call of that KU-Oklahoma game coming up on Saturday. Brian, thanks so much for your time as always, and before we let you go, a word from Nate Miller. Yeah, big thanks to my main man, Nate Miller. He'll do for you what he's done for me and sit you down and take a look at your investment portfolio or start up a portfolio for the first time. But make sure you have the most profitable and uh, sustainable financial future, the most secure financial future as well. So check him out today at MillerRetirementGroup.com. That's MillerRetirementGroup.com. Always a pleasure, Nick. You're doing a great job, man, and I look forward to talking to you again next week, my friend. All right, thanks so much, Brian. That was Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks here on Rock Talk Sports Talk on KLWN. We'll take a timeout, but first we got to get to our uh, disclaimer. Brian is a paid spokesperson, not a client. Brian does not endorse, and all individuals should make their own evaluation of the firm's investment advisory and insurance services. Investment advisory services offered only by duly registered individuals through AE Wealth Management, LLC. 
All right, one hour or an hour and a half down, and about an hour and a half to go here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. When we come back, we'll look around the rest of the Big Twelve. Also, Kansas women's basketball got a big win yes last night. We'll get into that later on in the hour. Josh Briscoe of Sports Radio 810 and The Zone in Kansas City will join us in the 5 o'clock hour. All that and more coming up here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, it's Nick Springer from Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. And despite sitting in a studio all day, my body feels great thanks to Massage Envy. Their total body stretch services can help you stay loose and limber and clear your mind and help your body. Their total body stretch services are completely customizable. All you have to do is sit back, relax, and breathe deep while they help you through the guided stretches. So if you've been dealing with aches and pains, be sure to check out Massage Envy on 6th Street in Lawrence and 119th in Black Bob in Olathe. 5 o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Nick Springer, and right now we are joined by Josh Briscoe of Sports Radio 810 The Zone. You can also hear him on the Kansas City Sports Network on the Only Weird Games podcast. And Josh, yesterday obviously was supposed to be a day of, of celebration, and for a large portion of the day it was, but it, it did turn uh, pretty tragic there at the end with the shooting that occurred at the end of the parade. And uh, I know you were there, and so to start off here, I just kind of want to give you an open floor about your experience and kind of what went down uh, there at the end of the at the end of the day. Yeah, man, it was bizarre. We were uh, doing the zone live from uh, the Western Auto Loft. We were a few stories off the ground and, and overlooking Grand. And uh, it was awesome up until, you know, everything turned horrible. But in so many ways, it was perhaps the most fun of the parades the Chiefs have had so far. And, you know, how spoiler are we to get to rank those? But um, it, the weather was nice. The players, many of them shirtless, were walking along the sides and high-fiving fans and, and really enjoying the moment and, and celebrating it in a way that, um, that this city loves to do so much, which is one of the extra, extra, extra reasons that everything just feels so horrible from yesterday because you had, I think I've heard something like maybe near a million people. I don't know exactly what the turnout was, but almost a million Kansas Cityans or, or people coming to Kansas city to celebrate with their fellow fans and to see their team and to, to celebrate everything that Kansas city means. I mean, the the reason that there are a lot of reasons Kansas City is special to me, but the the thing that makes the relationship between the city and the team special is that it, it is so completely intertwined. I mean, you, we've seen this the Royals too, certainly, but Kansas City is so proud of Kansas City. It is so ingrained. Like there there was some tweet I saw ages ago that I think about all the time um, that I am I am in the uh, the camp of, which is that Kansas Cityans are the only locals who wear merch that looks like you may or may not have bought it at an airport. And uh, obviously, you folks like, you know, Charlie Hustle and Sandlot Goods and uh, so many other great places that, that have been making Kansas City-based merch for, for a long time have been doing it because we like to wear it. We like to wear our KC hats to different places to let people know we're from Kansas City. I like wearing it around Kansas City because it's just another thing to be proud of about this community. And so all of that is so intertwined that yesterday wasn't truthfully, yesterday was not a celebration of the Chiefs. Yesterday was a celebration of Kansas City and Kansas City's football team. It's all so intertwined. And Clark Hunt said something, obviously, you know, just a little bit before the shooting ended up happening, and Nate Bucati from A-10 tweeted out the, the quote here. Clark Hunt said at one point in his speech on the stage at Union Station, this is an incredible moment for Kansas City. All over the world, they know about this amazing place. Never in our history have we had so many eyes on Kansas City and so many people talking about this town. Those words have such 
such a heavier hit to them now because he was right at the time, but it's more true now. And this isn't why we want eyes on Kansas City. This isn't why we want people talking about this town. I don't want to see moments of silence for Kansas City. I want to celebrate it loudly and and with all of the the confetti everywhere. And I so I, we ended up being about a quarter mile from Union Station or half a mile from where the shooting happened. And uh, me and my wife and, and a coworker were all just kind of up in that loft pretty late in the day. And uh, one of the images that I will keep with me forever is watching an ambulance go speeding down an empty Grand Boulevard, how, like going through a pile of confetti, kicking up this red, white, and yellow confetti behind an ambulance on its way to go pick up somebody who, who may or may not make it all the way to the hospital. We were listening to the police scanners at the time and, and listening to them send out requests to get information from local hospitals as to like how many level one trauma patients can you take. That's all stuff that Obviously, the weight of that, I'm, I'm heartbroken for all of the, the victims of, of all sorts. I'm heartbroken for the people who are nearby and maybe weren't physically hurt but are going to have to deal with the mental effects of this forever. Um, so many kids shot in this, in this incident. Um, on so many levels, it is an incredibly, incredibly heavy day and heavy week now that is immediately on the heels of one of the most joyous days in Kansas City. It wasn't just a Super Bowl parade also. It was a back-to-back parade. And then when we eventually left, walked into our car, it was it was surreal. It was post-apocalyptic. And, um, and that's just kind of a thing that happened in Kansas City now. It's obviously – Everyone should be devastated. No one should be surprised. This is a this is not a, a rare, weird thing. This is a uniquely American thing that happens all the time. Um, there are eight hundred officers there, and still we're we're talking about um, twenty three victims and uh, at least one casualty, and, and still not knowing exactly the situation. It's all very fluid. Still, um, just a devastating, devastating day. Yeah, I think that's very well said about the city of Kansas City, and I echo a lot of your thoughts on that. On that, you're right. The the, the city of Kansas City, those those people in the surrounding area, they take a lot of pride in the city, right? And and that was supposed to be a day really dedicated to that, not not going really go be, going beyond the Chiefs, right? Uh, so I certainly uh, agree with a lot of the thoughts there. Uh, just real quick, I want to pivot and go back to the game. Go back to Sunday. The Chiefs are down 10-0 to the 49ers to Brock Purdy and the San Francisco 49ers. What was your worry level at that point about them possibly trying to, to, to come back and, and win in that moment in the Super Bowl against the 49ers? I was, I was in a familiar place. I was worried about the Chiefs' offense while being completely confident in the defense, which is you know, sort of a bizarre um, thing that became pretty normal throughout this Chiefs season, right? Of being like, oh, you know, the Patrick Mahomes unit, as long as they can get it together, then this team's going to win a Super Bowl. Um, that's that's where I was at. I think I tweeted something snarky along the lines of like, uh, you know, it's it's ten nothing, and I'm afraid the Chiefs might lose this Super Bowl ten to three, and, and that is absolutely where I was at. Now, mercifully, that was the score at halftime, and it got uh, it got even scarier at times uh, early in the second half. But the Chiefs stayed close enough into it because the defense was playing stupendous football. The defense never stopped, and the offense picked up inside of the bargain late in the game, and, and we're talking about a back-to-back champion. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating that, to me, it almost felt like the Super Bowl was, uh, in many ways, a microcosm or a one-game snapshot of the Chiefs' whole season, where 
The offense struggled early and couldn't really, and were spinning their wheels, couldn't get things going, and yet the defense was just a constant that they were able to rely on, that, and that ultimately they did get it going and found a way to finish over the top. I mean, when you think about it that way, the, the defense was so good, man. Well, what made the defense so special in this game, you think, uh, against the Niners specifically? You can pick so many like reasonable answers to that question, which is crazy because it, it, they, they would all be true and all be perhaps equally deserving. Um, Trent McDuffie was unreal in this game, like just ridiculous. Legereus Sneed is also – I don't know who the best corner on this team is. I know they have two of the five best corners in football. That's unreal. Um, the defensive line even being really hampered uh, with injuries and not having Charles Aminahu in that game. They've been without Derek Naughty for a little while. Chris Jones had some absolute takeover snaps where he wins in half a second. And all of a sudden, Brock Purdy's get, getting sped up, and he, he played pretty good football. I don't. I, at no point did Brock Purdy turn into a pumpkin and just show you that he wasn't built for that moment, which I think kind of makes it even more impressive. I think I saw earlier today that it was like by far the most man defense that the Chiefs have played under Steve Spagnuolo, which was a hell of a switch up for him there. Um, but then you also have all of those different. Uh, pressure look, some simulated pressures, some real pressures, bringing guys from different spots, knowing how to handle the Niners' condensed formations. That's something that San Francisco just kind of thrives off of, you know, and by condensed formations, having everything, I mean, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory, I guess, so that I <laughs> seek to explain it. Everything's very condensed. It's not all spread out where you have your, your receivers out wide and your slots. They like to go in that, that very condensed package because when they go with a heavier personnel, they can still throw the ball because Juszczyk as a fullback is a, a tremendously unique athlete. George Kittle is a tremendously unique athlete. And George Kittle was a basic non-factor in this game. Uh, they, they played good run defense. Christian McCaffrey had a ton of touches and a ton of yards, but he averaged, what, like three and a half yards a carry uh, on the ground. The Niners couldn't get big plays with consistency. They they couldn't move the ball with complete consistency. You got great play from the stars of the defense, Chris Jones, uh, Legereus Need, Trent McDuffie, Justin Reed. At every depth, I mean, I've skipped over the linebackers, and I shouldn't. Leo Chanel had an incredible game. He's had two great Super Bowls. Uh, that whole group, Willie Gay, Nick Bolton, Drew Tranquil, and, of course, Chanel, all played good football. It really, like, it sounds almost like a cop-out because you're like, hey, Josh, what specifically was good from the Chiefs' defense? And I just named you every position group and most of the players and the defensive coordinator. But I really think, like, I, if you said, hey, who didn't play a good game defensively, I don't know how I would answer that question. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, it feels like when you when you look when you went into that game against the Niners, that was kind of what you were going to need. You were going to need kind of a, an A game really across the board because of all the weapons the Niners have, and certainly the defense delivered that. When you, when you look at the offensive side with Mahomes, do you think just maybe people might finally stop doubting Patrick Mahomes? Do you, do you think there's any chance of that? Or are we going to be right back here again next December, next January of, oh, I don't know if the Chiefs can do it or not? There's going to have to be some sort of like narrative adjustment, right? Like if it's not <coughs> – excuse me. If it's not uh, doubting Mahomes, it's, oh, well, he's actually – he's still overhyped or he's overrated or whatever. <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be some amount of goalposts moving. But I, I do think we're at a point now where even, like, last offseason was by and large, I think most people agreed, like, nah, Mahomes is QB1 in the NFL. But the, the wild thing about, like, the, the things that went wrong this season is that most of those concerns were absolutely valid. I mean, in <laughs> entering these playoffs – this is a funny thing that I, uh, I, it tickles me every time. 
entering these playoffs um, or, or Super Bowls. Patrick Mahomes was the uh, he's entering the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes was still the Chiefs' all-time leading playoff rusher, which is crazy. But you know, you're going to have the quarterback consistently, and he's not running like Lamar Jackson. But we've seen him in playoff games. He'll he'll take it and, and run and, and have some of the most impactful plays of the game. We know this. Well, I thought that Isaiah Pacheco would at least make up some ground. Instead, in the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes put seven yards between the two of them because he ran for 66 yards in this game. Um, obviously, with the, some of the late scrambles and, and designed runs and everything being the, uh, the hallmark of it all, the thing that's so hard to quantify that I do think people have, have begun to respect, and I think most uh, national pundits were kind of going this way before this game, is that Mahomes has this very um, – intangible ability to like air quotes here, find a way to win. And that's something that I've been kind of kicking around this week is, is this idea of trying to put something tangible into intangible things like that. What does it mean that Mahomes quote finds a way to win? Well, what I think on a practical level it is, is that he's the best player in the world. He doesn't make mistakes in, in latent games when he's got to have it. And there's stuff that he does in got to have it mode that doesn't necessarily come out in regular, just sort of ho-hum, the-year-as-it-goes the situation, like him running for 66 yards. He could do that every week if he wanted to. He, he really he could play a perfect fourth quarter and scramble like crazy, but there's an amount of like running the offense and making sure that you're doing things sustainably here. In the Super Bowl, who cares if it's sustainable? you gotta, you got to move. So that, to me, it, it, in so many ways, it's another Superman game for Mahomes. Um, his stat line is hilarious because it didn't feel like he threw for 333 yards. That means he comes a yard short of a 400-yard total offense game. Uh, yeah, I listen, I hope the Chiefs learn their lesson from the regular season while still appreciating what Mahomes did in the postseason. Because I want his life to be as easy as possible next year. I want him to have some more weapons he can trust. But, yeah, man, why would you bet against Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs? It, it's a fool's errand. Speaking of, of weapons that Mahomes can trust, how do you even explain what Travis Kelsey did? You know, I was thinking about this. All season long, he looks like he's a step or two steps or three steps slower. And then somehow the playoffs hit and it's like, boom, this guy's 28 years old again. And, he, and then in the Super Bowl, he outgains Ayuk, Kittle, and Debo combined while also being like the second fastest player on the field at one point in the game. How do you even explain what Travis Kelsey just did in this playoff run? I'll add in, I think there was like a next-gen stats of that of his speed there that was like the fastest recorded speed he had on a football field in seven seasons, I think. Um, <laughs> that's unbelievable because, yeah, look, uh, I, think, I, I do think I can actually explain it to some extent, though, kind of like with the Mahomes unexplainable stuff. With Kelsey, I think there's a few things. One is that his demise was greatly exaggerated. He, he hyperextended his knee like an hour and a half before the first game of the year. I'm exaggerating, but barely. It was the last practice before Chiefs-Lions. So he was dealing with the physical ailments of all of that the whole way through. And then, frankly, I think there were a lot of people that saw him get real famous real fast and decided they didn't like that. And so all of the, uh, the meltdown was somehow uh, either his fault or Taylor Swift's fault or he's washed or whatever. That was always ludicrous. But in, in this run, we saw him look different in the playoffs, kind of shifting a gear up, I think, for two reasons. One is rest. He sat out week 18. He didn't hit 1,000 yards on a season. I bet he's okay with that trade. I'm, in fact, I'm 100% confident, obviously. Everyone is cool with that trade. And he ended up with more than 1,000 yards counting in the uh, postseason. We'll, we'll go ahead and fudge the record books if we need to there. But the other thing is that, and then so he, again, he gets another week off leading up to the Super Bowl, right? So he is as spry as you're going to get him 
since the, the knee hyperextension, or really since pre-training camp, perhaps, you got, like, the best form of Travis Kelsey. The other thing is that the playoffs are different. And that's something I, I am, you know me well enough to know, like, I, I want to be rational and, and analytical when I can be. I don't like, I don't really like doing, you know, oh, he's just a winner and winners win. Cause like, you know, no shade to, to uh, homeschool legend, Tim Tebow, but Tim Tebow was a winner in college and a loser in the pros. That's because things change and different things make you winners at different levels. And it's not, he's one of the greatest college players of all time. And watching him win a playoff game at quarterback for the Broncos was like genuinely painful. All of that to say, Travis Kelsey in playoff mode, there was a different intensity all year long. There, there was another, like, turned-up level of what he was going for throughout these playoffs. I don't know if it's focus or intensity. He admitted at some point on New Heights that, you know, it, 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 it is harder to – I can't remember what his specifics were, but it was something along the lines of it is harder to go 100% in Week 11 against some team you know you're supposed to beat. It's different there as opposed to playoff games for your lives road playoff games for the first time in this era, and then obviously a Super Bowl, all that comes together to to paint an incredible picture of what he, he did down the stretch this year. You've had some time to sort of absorb this Super Bowl and, and obviously this season and the Chiefs run. Uh, let's say the Chiefs do kind of solidify their dynasty. Maybe they go out and they win another Super Bowl or two or three in the next you know five, six, seven, eight years, whatever. Do you think you'll still look back on this one as maybe being – the most special just because of the way the season unfolded and the path that the Chiefs took to win this one? It's a fascinating question, and I think it's going to take us years, like you said, to actually be able to judge that. I think on some level, for me at least, that first one is going to be the one that that holds the most special place because you just – you could have gotten me at any point in my life before, like at least 2017, maybe 2018. You could have asked me, hey, like, would you bet anything on the Chiefs winning a Super Bowl in your lifetime? And I'd be like, no, I mean, it, weird stuff happens, but I wouldn't bet on it. No, I, I, I've learned too much of what it means to be a Chiefs fan as a kid or whatever. Um, so then breaking that curse, essentially, with that first one was, was like special on a level that was hard to wrap your head around. I do think this one, though, with being the first team to go back-to-back in 20 years. And at this point, absolutely no question, this is a dynasty. It's a dynasty in progress, but it is a dynasty. Uh, If they didn't win another game, it it still would be. But this cementing that, to to go back to last year, though, last year was cementing that it wasn't a fluke. Last year was cementing that Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes and and Travis Kelsey weren't going to retire with one ring to their names. So I, I think they've all been special in different ways. Also, last year was special because it was without Tyreek Hill. They weren't supposed to be there last year. They weren't supposed to be there this year. I kind of think the next couple of years might be a little bit brighter for the Chiefs in some ways than these last two were, and these last two ended in Lombardi's. So um, I I do think that the back-to-back, and and maybe if they three-peat, then the back-to-back drops down a rung. But the fact that this one does so clearly leave no doubt that the Kansas City Chiefs are a dynasty and are the team of the 2020s, that's an unbelievable thing that I, I just can't imagine anybody ever believed that, that we would live to see. He is Josh Briscoe of 810 Sports Radio and The Zone. You can also listen to him on Kansas City Sports Network on the Only Weird Games podcast. Josh, thanks so much for uh, hopping on today. And I uh, also just want to say, you know, glad that, that you and your loved ones are safe and hope that everyone else in Kansas City has the opportunity to kind of heal from, uh, from what happened yesterday. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And yeah, everybody, if you need an excuse to check in on the people around you, I, it, 
again, with the information we have right now, hopefully that we're, we're only getting good news about the physical state of people, but there are going to be some, some mental wounds that a lot of people carry with them for a long time around here. So uh, check up with each other and, uh, and, and make sure you're, you're checking on your people. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, man. All right, that was Josh Briscoe of 810 Sports Radio The Zone and the Kansas City Sports Network on the Only Weird Games podcast. Thanks so much to Josh for hopping on. And, and again, I thought he did a great job of eloquently kind of explaining at the beginning there about the, the, the parade and the celebration and everything and, and now how this has been kind of a tough 24, 48 hours and will probably continue to be tough for a little bit for some people in the Kansas City area. And like you said, man, if you ever need an excuse to check up on somebody, that's probably one that's probably one to do it now. So thanks so much to Josh once again for coming on. We're going to take a time out here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. When we come back, we're going to get to some KU women's basketball audio. The Jayhawks got a big win last night against Cincinnati, 75-60. to That's coming up on the other side. Don't forget, tonight after the show, we're going to be at High School Sports Weekly at Mama's Tamale Shop here in Lawrence. Be sure to stop by, and, and you can listen right here on KLWN with the Veritas Boys basketball team. That's coming up at 6 here right after the show tonight. And we'll also have high school basketball coverage of the City Showdown, Lawrence High and Free State, coming up tomorrow night right here on KLWN. And, of course, we'll have KU men's and women's basketball on Saturday as well. We'll take a time out. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Well, that's it here on the podcast side here on the Best of RCST podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. And, of course, if you do want to hear the full show, you can listen every day, 3 to 6, Monday through Friday, for Rock Chalk Sports Talk, your only daily KU-centric sports radio show that you'll find every day from 3 to 6 on KLWN. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thanks so much for listening to the Best of RCSD Podcasts presented by Massage Envy. You can also find us on KUSports.com as well. Be sure to check out the live show every day from 3 to 6 on KLWN. Thanks for listening.